1: Baritone Thomas Hampson is Backstage at Lyric. The Macbeth family are not just Bonnie and Clyde.
0: They are the kinds of cancers of society that rob the decency and the life of those around them at the
1: expense of the ambition and ego of themselves. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Mark Travis, producer for the series and for the Buxbaum Family Lyric Opera of Chicago broadcasts. Considered one of America's leading baritones for the better part of three decades, Thomas Hampson's operatic repertoire spans from Mozart to Puccini and from Rossini to Wagner. Also a celebrated interpreter of lieder, he has appeared in all of the major opera houses and concert halls of the world, and he has an impressive discography that includes many award-winning recordings. On October 1, 2010, Mr. Hampson will sing the title role in Lyric Opera's opening night production of Verdi's Macbeth. This is the second installment in a two-part interview I did with Mr. Hampson. This time, we focus on some of his thoughts about the character of Macbeth, his relationship to Lady Macbeth, and other details of both the opera and the production. The interview was recorded at Avery Fisher Hall in New York City, and I'm your host
0: you know Verdi uh, it's interesting as, as much as he loved the baritone voice he was it was the first it was the first fach as it were for him to start cutting arias uh-huh. <laughs> you know, Bocanegra doesn't have one he has that chorus scene which of course is a miracle but you know it's not something you can sing on a gala <laughs> <laughs> Macbeth has one aria and to sing it well actually to sing arias out of context period is difficult but nevertheless and it's a wonderful aria pietà rispetto amore, which actually is not a plea, it's a statement of fact. Those things will not be mine. They will not be the comforts of my old age. It is an incredibly philosophical moment of a man, and to me, his last aria in the fourth act, this pietà rispetto amore, if you've drug him through the slime of his own cowardice all the two and a half hours before that, And the bearing of this very ambitious and yet morally terrifically confused soul, Macbeth, then when you hear this aria, you do identify with the torment of a human being who knows he's done wrong, who knows he has completely destroyed not only his life, but life around him. And I think this is one of the biggest things I'm very anxious to work with Barbara on and and know her take and how she wants to do it. The, The Macbeth family are not just Bonnie and Clyde. They are the kinds of cancers of society that rob the decency and the life of those around them at the expense of the ambition and ego of themselves. And this slimy addiction to one another, and it's really like a drug addiction, he and Lady Macbeth. I think Lady Macbeth inhabits a more unredeemable evil in human nature than Mr. Macbeth. I don't think, I hesitate because I don't think Macbeth himself is redeemable by the time we meet him. But he's a curious guy in that he somehow paranoically aware of the misdeed and the wrong deed and the life-destroying consequences of the decisions that he goes along with, that he makes. He he likes being manipulated, but at the same time wants to pretend that he's not. It's a very—it's a deeply psychotic character. But then you get, as I say, through the slime of all these intentions, and you get to this magnificent aria— which in Verdi's hands is a lament. It's his own requiem. And even talks about what should be said on my tombstone. And then says, but there will be no funeral march for me. There will be nobody carrying me to my grave. I will just be a disgusting piece of humanity that finally ran its course. And what does he do after that? I want to use a bad word, but I'm I'm not going to. He says, the hell with it. Then so be it. Let it run its course. And I think he goes into that last battle knowing Felwar he's going to die. But this is the sick part of him. Maybe I won't. And then maybe that means I'm actually immortal maybe i did do okay so he actually never redeems so it's a very complex character very the the opera itself is very episodic it, there isn't really a through line you know we're not going through doors and the sun comes up and goes down we we see them in in various juxtapositions in their in the nefarious actions that's slightly different than the than the play because the play is a play frankly if i may digress I think that's one of the most interesting and less talked about aspects of opera as an art form. Period. I don't think opera is about plot, and and it better not be. Well, you're yeah, quite. <laughs> well, you, yeah, we all laugh, and, and right. you know, it's it's the, it's the great fun to do. But in mm-hmm. fact, I don't think it was ever the intent to have plot. I think it's about dilemma. I think the plot is just there enough to get us from the solos to the trios to the to the duets to this whatever that musical structure is that actually puts a light on what that dilemma of emotion and and dialogue with fate is. It's always a dialogue with fate in opera, you know, whether it's the lovers that find themselves in complete bathed sunlight talking quietly. And, and, and secretly amongst themselves, you know, some completely silly thing. That's irrelevant. The conversation is what's important. The dilemma that they're working through, the euphoria, the love, the jealousy, whatever that is. So I think that, and, and, and I bring that up because I think it's one of the first things we need to invite a, an opera public to release. And that is release the television, release the cinema, and release the theater. It's a different theater you're in. If you want words, go to the theater. If you want words, music, emotion, passion, power all in one in almost an instinctual relationship, then you'll go to the opera. And quite frankly, I don't think you should choose between the two. I think you should augment your life with both. But it's not just a musical framing of a play situation. Uh, And I, I feel very strongly. I think the biggest competition today for opera is somehow justifying itself to the film world and, and I think that's a terribly unfair effort because even the most, uh, you know, even the David Lynch's of the world, the first five minutes, you're getting an awful lot of information of symbols that you're going to deal with for the rest of this rather crazy adventure that, that he seemingly disjuncted adventure that you're going to be adding up to. You never have that in the opera that used to be implied in the overture but we've lost our musical sensitivities the overture the overture is a prelude to did I park the cars my telephone turned off Uh, this is the music language I'm going to be dealing with mostly I'm I'm not trying to be cynical but the actual sensitivity to motive and oh yes we hear that but that we've lost a little bit of that and that's that's fine that's not a big problem but we don't When we walk into the first scene of an opera, we're walking into something that's been going on for quite some time with a lot of layers of personalities that it would be best to know before you went. Oh my God, I have to study for the opera? Well, no, but you know, if you're going to go to a new exhibition of Fragonard paintings at the Met or in Chicago, aren't you going to pick up a catalog? (laughs) (laughs) Aren't you going to, aren't you going to want to know a little something? So I, I don't I think it's such a bad thing to, to know a little bit more before you go in the theater or the concert hall, you know.
1: What do you know about this character before you step on stage for the first time?
0: That's very important. Who You know, when he walks out on stage, what is all? You know, I'm walking out. The first thing you see with Macbeth, he's got this confrontation with these three so-called witches. But that's not what he's expecting. It's, however, quite funny that he walks out and whatever this bloody dank battle scenario is, with ostensibly his closest comrade at arms, although there's nice that implied competition, this banco kind of thing. It is about secession. He's preoccupied with with the feudal dynasty. So he's preoccupied, but he's not at all preoccupied with other worldly things. But he's sensitive in a lot of in a lot of ways, he walks out and the first thing he says, there's something strange about this day. There's a storm coming. It feels like lightning, but it's dark. You know, there's something that, and of course, the, the implication is a presage, you know. Well, that's the miracle of opera. You get to set up scenes by remarking on scenes at the same time. It's a very interesting tool. That is a direct quote from the Shakespeare. And that's very And then unravels, and is as, and then things start being heard by other people than him, which is then the big trick of theater. You know, there's all these witches and weird people around, which ostensibly he doesn't see, right? But then they start revealing themselves one after the other. I, I'm, I'm very curious how Barbara's is going to to do that. It's always fun for the producer to come up with yet another more bizarre way to stage the the witches, but directly your question, what's in Macbeth's head when he walks out when we first see him and I think it is this preoccupation with dynasty this incipient conversation that has already started, this thing of how do I get up the ladder and become the top and this lady Macbeth is already in his head, deeply in his head and yet he's at work, so to speak. So he's distracted and in somehow a vulnerable a vulnerable psychological point so that something like a mysterious, you know, a black cat walks in front of him or a, or a a dog seems to say something instead of bark. You know, he's kind of open to this, what the hell was that kind of thing? He's not in himself. There's something else. And then even in that rather marvelous set, Strophic duet Wonderful layers of Paranoid behavior Start showing up and Looking at his hand and thinking about You know Would I kill? Could I kill? And he looks at Banco Is he useful? Should he stay? What is life? Are people just pawns? Is it, I mean there's just That maybe had the day gone on differently That would have all just become delusional And, and he'd get on with it So it he's very uncentered and very you're not quite sure who this guy is. And we don't actually feel like we've oh, I get it, until she shows up. And then and then like I say, this silicious, slimy, addictive, manipulative, destructive relationship just turns into a a volcanic or a cauldron of evil, as we know it. And it destroys life as we know it in that corner of the world at that time.
1: Addictive in in what sense? Because she is I mean just you would have to search pretty hard to find a more vile character in in opera or or drama.
0: Well, I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's very much addictive like like a drug. I mm-hmm. think the relationship is obviously overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. I think there's I think the seething sweaty, you know, decadent behavior between the two of them should be apparent. I, I hope we can go that far. You know, I don't think we need to do anything vile on stage, but I think it should be apparent that the glee of their privateness is as much part of their plotting and manipulation uh, mm-hmm. as anything else. I, I think that you know, I, I, if she were to die or be killed, I think there would be a, a, a kind of life force that would just immediately be gone from him. You know, and I, that's what I mean by addictive. Although she, she is definitely the, 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 the leader of this. I mean, mm. she's the conniver, the manipulator, that wonderful Ari in the second act, you know, where she's whispering and slith- slithering like a snake around the ground and whispering into his ear and, you know, yeah, you can just do it this way, it'll be fine, and then we go here and then you to go there and take him and, ke- eh. you know, it's, oh, it's mm. unbelievable.
1: Why is she with him?
0: That's a very good question. I I can't tell you that. He's lucky? I don't know. (laughs) Unfortunate? I don't know. Uh, Probably because he's strong enough to be king and and weak enough for her to manipulate. That she chose him, I think, is the really important thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I believe. I think that, you know probably when she was seven years old out on the playground <laughs> you know kind of like you know the Adams family youngest right. girl <laughs> oh I think he's lurch
1: <laughs> you know yeah fascinating well thank you so much for uh, taking some time to speak with us absolutely looking forward best of luck with all these performances <music> You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.